All right. Good morning. Thank you guys for being here. Um, in this small little church, uh, a few minutes before the service started, the townspeople were sitting in the pews and talking. Pews are, you know, these are chairs, pews. Well, I can explain that later. Um, suddenly, <laughs> Satan appeared at the front of the church. Uh, everyone started screaming and running for the front entrance, trampling each other in a frantic effort to get away from evil incarnate, kind of like Black Friday. So soon, everyone had exited the church except for one elderly gentleman who, was, who sat calmly in his pew without moving, seeming oblivious to the fact that God's ultimate enemy was in his presence. So Satan walked up to the old man and said, don't you know who I am? And the man replied, yep, sure do. Aren't you afraid of me? Satan asked. Nope, sure ain't. Don't you realize I can kill you with a word, asked Satan. Don't doubt it for a minute, returned the old man in an even tone. Did you know that I could cause you profound, horrifying, physical agony for all eternity, persisted Satan. Yep, was the calm reply. And you're still not afraid, Satan asked. Nope. More than a little perturbed, Satan asked, well, why aren't you afraid of me? Why aren't you afraid of me? I'm Satan. The man calmly replied, been married to your sister for the last 48 years. <laughs> you see, Satan was oblivious uh, as to why this elderly man was not intimidated or afraid. He couldn't understand why this old man didn't fear him. Satan reveals who he is, tells the elderly, elderly man what he's capable of doing, but to no avail. Why is this man not terrified of me, Satan thought? Well, there was more going on. This elderly man knew something Satan did not now, while this is a cute little anecdote, do we often think this about God? Do we think that God is oblivious? Or better yet, do we think God is insensitive to our circumstances? In other words, the question I want to answer by the end of the sermon today is this. What is God doing while we suffer? What's he doing? Is he hanging out? Is he just watching? What is he doing as we are suffering? Uh, last week, um, Genesis 34 through 35, Dylan preached. And basically what we saw there is, uh, it was not a good sermon. It was very uncomfortable. Uh, the daughter was attacked and raped and the sons took it upon themselves to deal with it because Jacob kind of, uh, kind of just ignored, just very passive in the whole thing. And the reason they were in that position um, where the daughter was attacked and raped is because Jacob compromised. Instead of directing and going where God had had sent him, he decided to kind of settle somewhere that seemed good for him in the moment. So we see that Jacob is making a lot of compromises. And then we come to chapter 36 and 37. If you guys want to turn to uh, your Bible, we, um, we're not going to cover 36. I'm going to mention a couple brief things about it. It's basically, it is the genealogy of Esau, uh, which is Jacob's brother. And so what you're going to see in this passage is we're, we're kind of entering into like the last third of the book of Genesis. Um, and so we're going to be in Genesis 36 and 37. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. You can keep that. If you don't have one, uh, that is a gift to you from us. So briefly, Genesis 36, uh, what's going on here? Like I said, this, this, hold on tight. We're going to cover a lot of awesome stuff this morning. But basically what we see here in Genesis 36 is it serves as somewhat of, a, of an epilogue, okay, uh, in the first two thirds of the book. In the first five verses of Genesis 36, we see a glimpse of Esau, better known also as Edom, uh, his immediate family. He has three Canaanite wives that, were, that bore him five children. Now, again, if you're new with us this morning, Esau was the brother of Jacob who sold his birthright to Jacob in exchange for some Campbell's soup. 
Jacob then deceived his father Isaac along with several others from that point forward. Like you see throughout the story, again, if you're new here, Jacob has constantly deceived, deceived, and deceived. From verse 9 until the end of the chapter, we are given the more detailed lineage of Esau, uh, the family tree of Sire, the Horite, which these were inhabitants of the land before Esau conquered it. And finally, eight kings who reigned in Edom before Israel had their first king. This is what it says in verses 6 through 7 of chapter 36. Esau took his wives, sons, daughters, and all the people of his household, as well as his herds, all his livestock, and all the property he had acquired in Canaan. He went to a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too many for them to live together. And because of their herds, the land where they stayed could not support them. So Esau, that is Edom, lived in the mountains of Seir. So God actually did bless the Edomites in like more material, tangible ways. But as we'll see throughout the rest of the Old Testament, Edom will be a constant thorn in Israel's side. Israel is God's chosen people, and he is blessing this nation in vastly different ways, although Israel often doesn't see it. So what's kind of the verse, uh, the, the point of Genesis 36? Uh, genealogies in the Bible are important. I mean, it's historical fact. It can kind of show you also, you look in the New Testament, the Gospels, uh, particularly the Gospel of Matthew, it actually has a genealogy that's showing you that Jesus, the Savior of the world, came through particular lineages. Um, and so it's very important to understand where these people came from. Um, but what this is showing here in Genesis 36 is that Esau's family is kind of in the rearview mirror, and Jacob's nucleus is being placed under the microscope. So we're getting a more specific look at Jacob and uh, specifically his son, Joseph, Okay his son, Joseph. So let's turn our attention to Genesis 37 so we can answer this question. Okay, have this question in the back of your mind the entire sermon. What is God doing while we suffer? Uh, maybe to contextualize it, if you're going through some garbage right now that's not your own doing, what is God doing while blank? So kind of put yourself in there. Let's look at Genesis 1, uh, 37, 1 through 4. All right, here we go. Hold on tight. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. These are the family records of Jacob. So we're introducing something here. At 17 years of, all, uh, of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. The young man was working with the sons of Bahal and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel, also Jacob, loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age. And he made a long-sleeved robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. So here we see that Jacob and his crew were living in Canaan as a result of the split with Esau because of the size of their belongings. So lots of land and lots of possessions. It kind of reminds us of when there was a split between Abraham and Lot. Um, earlier in, in Genesis. So there's some parallels there. So we have a starting location, the where, and now the who, the history of Jacob's family. Now the word for history here is actually, um, I try not to get too much into the weeds, but it's called toledot in Hebrew. Uh, Hebrew is um, the language of those people. And it's used to introduce major figures and signal a transition into the new chapter. Okay, so um, we have to keep in context everything we've learned about Genesis and Jacob's family and all the, uh, the fathers of the faith, um, but we're kind of entering into something different. The rest of Genesis is about 
Joseph, which is obviously Jacob's son, and everything else that, that follows and proceeds after that, okay? So, Joseph, who is, who is Joseph? Let's get some, some context here. So, Joseph was the oldest of Rachel's biological children. Rachel is the wife that Jacob truly loved. Um, he was kind of scammed by Rachel and her sister Leah's father, Laban. Um, so, where basically, Jacob was given Leah, but really wanted Rachel, and he's also got concubines and other maidservants that he's had children with. It's just, it's very dysfunctional. Um, uh, Rachel also has, uh, also gave birth to Benjamin, which is the, the youngest, but she died uh, during labor um, for, for Benjamin. So Joseph was younger, though, than all the other sons and the only daughter at this point. So Benjamin was the youngest, but we're focusing on Joseph here. Joseph was the youngest out of all of those other brothers and the daughter. Um, Joseph was actually 17 years old at this time, but I do want to encourage us to not compare him to like a high school junior or senior today. Uh, back then, they were focused on their livestock and hurting them all, and today's teenagers are screaming, gotta catch them all. Um, so there's a big difference, that's a Pokemon reference, by the way. Um, <laughs> I'm taking tally of one of these jokes and they don't work, so I don't do it next time, so that's, that's one strike against me. Um, so basically what we're looking at, Joseph at this time had more in common with someone who was like, I'd say early, mid-30s in regards to their age of, uh, their season of life and the responsibilities that they have. Uh, so try not to think of our juniors and seniors today. Um, think of someone who, I, I, I don't know, I think about me, and I'm not mature at all for my age. So uh, just, you know, mid-30s, all right, let's we'll just roll with that before I get myself in trouble. All right, so he had nothing in common with today's young adults, all right? So after working in the field with some of his brothers, Joseph returned home and brought a bad report to Jacob. If you see that in verse, I think it was verse 3. Maybe it was verse 2, he brought a bad report about his brothers to his father. Now, the term bad here, um, there, there's been some debate, but it can also be interpreted as evil or misleading, deceptive, untrue, or it could have been like with bad intentions where it wasn't just a report about what his brothers were doing or how they were tending to the flock. It was more of a, a way to make them look bad. He ever told the truth to someone, but like there's a little sting in it just to, to let someone know they shouldn't be doing that. Um, we don't know Joseph's attitude. And that's why I wanted to remind you, don't think about it as a 17-year-old today because uh, there are some interpretations when I was reading uh, different scholars and what they thought that Joseph was a punk. I, we don't know that. We don't know that. We do know that Joseph was young. Uh, if you guys remember the decisions that you made, young, uh, or even yesterday, uh, oftentimes you are like, man, why was I such a punk? Why did I make such a bad decision? Um, so there's no, there's no indication here that that's the person that J Joseph was, uh, but there could be some possible immaturities here. But we'll take it at face value that Jacob is merely just reporting back, I'm sorry, Joseph is just merely reporting back to Jacob um, a bad report. Maybe they weren't doing their job, or maybe they were sleeping on the job. And you'll, you'll find out why he's saying, why is, why is Joseph the one that is reporting all this. We'll, we'll, we'll unfold that here in a second. So the author here is showing us that Joseph was, um, was Jacob's favorite, as you'll see here. Um, now, Israel loved Jacob more than his other sons because Joseph was born to him in his older age and made him a long-sleeved robe for him. So Jacob loved the son he loved more, a coat of royalty, also known as the coat of many colors 
or a multicolored coat. I'm sure you might, might have remembered that. If you grew up in church, the, the flannel graphs with, you know, Joseph's got his awesome coat. Um, it's probably not like that. It's probably not like that at all. There was, there was no attempt here, though, to hide how much Jacob valued Joseph, even though the, he was the younger one of the other. So I want to talk about the, the coats real quick. Uh, there'll be a picture up on the screen. And it's kind of hard. The one on the far, let's see, your right. Nope, your left. That is something more of what the shepherds or people tending the flock would look like. It's kind of go, uh, uh, gathered up in the middle so that I can actually be flexible and bend and do hard work. It's short-sleeved. The one in the front is, if you can see, it's not so much a ton of colors. Multicolor could only also just be, maybe it's just two colors. Multi doesn't have to be like the, a rainbow, which a lot of times is what you see. And that is what Joseph is wearing. So basically, Joseph is kind of the manager of his older brothers. Now, in ancient times, that's, that's a no-no, okay? You will, you will be looked down upon as the younger sibling, or you won't get the father's inheritance and that type of stuff. Uh, what we've seen happen through Genesis is Simeon, or Reuben is the oldest. He already slept with one of Jacob's concubines, so he has disqualified himself. Uh, we learned last week that two of the other brothers who were next in line are the ones who you know, tricked uh, Shechem's people into getting circumcised, and while they were recovering, just killed them all. So they're disqualified. Um, so Jacob loves Joseph. I, I don't know why they chose him, but this is the scene that's going on. And it's like, he's not, he's, Joseph, Jacob is unapologetic of his love for Joseph. Now, this passage, and it might've been preached before. Uh, I'm not convinced of this. This passage is not about favoritism. It's not. There is favoritism here, but I think there's a lot more that the narrator that God is trying to show us in this story. Favoritism, yeah, you shouldn't do it. Shouldn't favor certain people over others. Um, but that's not what's going on here. So as a result of, of this, Joseph's brothers hated him. And it's, it's mentioned like three times in the, little, in the first bit of Genesis 37. This hatred wasn't sudden. If you think about it, if Joseph is Jacob's favorite, if you guys remember at all how Jacob has been, like just not, a, not, just not the best father, not the best example. Um, when he was going to meet Esau for the first time in many years, um, he lined up his family where, you know, Leah, the maidservants, all the sons that he had with them were up front. And then Rachel and Jacob and Joseph were in the back because they were more protected. Uh, Jacob sat back and did nothing as his daughter was attacked and raped. So there's even some anger there with these brothers where it's like, you don't love our mom. Doesn't seem like you love us at all. And now that, that hate is being put upon Joseph because Joseph is Jacob's favorite. In fact, hatred in this sense, uh, that's used in this verse, um, it's not just a personal position or attitude. It's almost foreshadowing that a hateful deed is to follow. Which is why in scripture, when Jesus says in the New Testament that to hate someone else is equal to murder. How, how can you get to the point of murder? How can you get to the point of adultery if it doesn't start with hate, if it doesn't start with lust? And so that's why these are equal in the sight of God. So when they use hatred here, we're gonna see there's, there's gonna be some actions that follow. The line in which Christ would come, we talk about was so dysfunctional, the Bible doesn't try to hide it. That's one evidence the Bible is true. Like a lot of times when you, when you read these documents or their stories or true crime podcasts, if you listen to that, um, they always try to hide things. The Bible's not hiding anything. And we're often very uncomfortable with the things that the Bible teaches. But this is what happened. Here it is. 
In fact, it puts this dysfunctionality at the forefront so we can see how much we need grace. All of Scripture points us to a Savior outside ourselves. Uh, And then verse 5 says this, So then Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Awkward pause. Uh, As if his brothers weren't already ticked off enough, Joseph had two dreams that are about to fuel their fire. And we'll get those here in a second. A couple facts here about dreams just to kind of give us a little break. Uh, Did you know people forget 95% of their dreams? Uh, Blind people see images in their dreams. People over the age of 10 have about four to six dreams a night. About uh, around 12% of people dream in black and white. Longer dreams occur in the morning hours. Some dreams are universal, like you're always being chased or you're always falling. Um, Have you ever had a dream where like you're just out on a boat fishing and someone screams banana and then you turn around and you're actually fishing with a robot? You fall into the water and you end up at a birthday party and you're like, your best friend's a unicorn that only speaks Korean. (laughs) You have, I know you have, just don't tell anybody about it. I have those often. So dreams can be very vivid, Um, very vivid. Uh, They can just be a collection of the stuff that we've heard about throughout the day that we've experienced, deep-seated trauma, lots of different things. And often in, in biblical times, God spoke to people, even their belief that deities, whether they're God or not, Um, will speak to people through dreams. So why is it dreams? I think it's because they're very vivid and they're not easily forgotten. So we're gonna drive into these dreams that Jacob had. And again, keep this thing in your mind. What is God doing while we are suffering? Verse six. He said to them, Joseph, listen to this dream I had. There we were, binding sheaves of grain in the field. Suddenly my sheaf stood up and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Are you really going to reign over us? His brothers asked him. Are you really going to rule us? So that they hated him even more because of his dream and what he had said. Uh, Another fact about dreams is during this time is they were often seen as messages from deities. Um, Joseph's dreams, this basically is what Joseph's saying. Hey brothers, you will bow down and honor me even though I'm at the back of the line. That's that's how the brothers are interpreting this. Now we don't know how Joseph, Joseph communicated these dreams. Uh, We don't know if he was being kind of arrogant. He just reveals them. Um, And so if if they couldn't hate him even more, um, (laughs) Joseph buckled down and shared another dream that he had. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. So he told his father and his brothers, so the father was included. And actually this time Jacob rebuked him. What kind of dream is this that you have had? He said, am I and your mother and your brothers really going to come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. And so all of this, it's a lot. It's a lot of information. One of the first points that I do want to make is, what is God doing while we suffer? God is setting things in motion. As we can see with this dream, uh, the dream basically is there's this, there's this future where everybody's going to be bowing down to Joseph. And like, what, what? in the context now, Joseph's around hated family. How is it going to be that Joseph is going to basically rule over everyone? So, so God has these things in motion. And I, and I want us to emphasize the context here. I don't want us to misinterpret that we can go out and do what we want to and get ourselves in trouble and bring suffering upon ourselves, bring bad circumstances upon ourselves, hoping we're going to get some kind of badge of honor that God's going to bless us. 
Okay, what we see here in Joseph's in Joseph story is this is unwarranted. This is not something he asked for. He hasn't done anything in particular to put himself in this situation. And I'm sure you perhaps are going through something right now that it's not of your doing. You're like, what in the world? I didn't ask for this. You may even ask yourself, I don't, or tell yourself, I don't, I don't deserve this much. Over the, people over there, they deserve it because they're evil, but I don't deserve this. I'm doing X, Y, and Z. And maybe that's actually the feeling that you have. And you're like, God, what are you doing during this? And we can see here in this story is God is setting things in motion. That may not be super encouraging to you. You're like, okay, what, who cares if he's setting things in motion? I need, I need rescuing now. We just hold on. Now, Jacob is questioning Joseph about his dreams, whether it was because he doubled down or there was any other reason. Uh, what we do know is this, this dream was true. This, this foreshadowing was true of, of Joseph. So false dreams, if this was a false dream, are usually very positive. And um, they tell people what they want to hear. Second, the fact that there's two dreams convey this message. Okay, so this is not favorable to the brothers. And there was two of them. So if we look later on in uh, the, the book of Genesis chapter 42, verse 32, um, spoilers, Joseph is interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh. And it, it says, since the dream was given twice to Pharaoh, it means that the matter has been determined by God. And, and he will carry it out soon. So these aren't just dreams from a random deity. They are dreams from God because they're not favorable towards anyone, maybe other than Joseph at this point. Um, and it's mentioned twice. There's two dreams telling the same story. We see this in the book of Psalms too. It's like saying the same phrase to emphasize it, but it means the same thing. It's that emphasis that this is going to come true. So we see God is setting things in motion. You're not aware of it as you're suffering but God is setting things in motion. Continuing in verse 12. His brothers had gone to pasture, their father's flocks at Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, your brothers, you know, are pasturing the flocks of Shechem. Get ready, I'm sending you. So Joseph replied, I'm ready. Then Israel said to him, go and see how your brothers and the flocks are doing and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the Hebron Valley and he went to Shechem. Now a man found him there wandering in the field and asked Joseph, uh, what, what you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph said. Can you tell me where they are pasturing their flocks? They moved on from here, the man said. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph set out after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, we don't know the time lapse between the dreams that he had and this point here. But we do know that Joseph's brothers are tending to their flock. Could have been the next day. Could have been several, several days later. The brothers are taking care of the flocks at Shechem, a flashback to where their sister was sexually violated and Simeon and Levi took things into their own hands. So this was not a safe place as some may have been looking to exact revenge. So Jacob sends his manager, his, his foreman in the, in the nice royal long-sleeved multicolored jacket to check on things. Joseph quickly agrees to the task to bring back another report. While traveling, Joseph gets lost. He's just kind of wandering around. Um, maybe... I don't know, like a man who's just hanging out in Joanne fabrics. So this man is described as nothing where that's another bad joke too. Um, sees Joseph is lost and asks him, hey, do you need any help? Joseph tells him he's looking for his brothers. Uh, he was sent here to see, get a report on him. He doesn't see him. And this man says that they have traveled to Dothan. Now, whether this random man was an angel sent by God 
That's an interpretation. To redirect Joseph or a fellow worker in the same area as his brothers, Joseph's encounter was, was providential. Now, uh, to pause here briefly. Uh, I want to show you this creepy picture on the screen of a marionette. Marionettes, okay? Uh, they got little strings on them. And that's how the marionetter, it's not a word, but the person who controls them, puppeteer, there we go, marionetter, <laughs> um, is the one like basically pulling the strings for a lot, you know, that's, that's where the, the saying comes from. Um, this is not how God operates with us, okay? God does not just do what he wants to to us. This is not what his sovereignty dictates. We are, we are free creatures, but the powerful thing about God is that he works out his will using our free choices. But our lives, the thing that comprises of our lives and the people that we're close to, aren't like a, a puppeteer controlling marionettes. They're experiences, okay? Life is a series of interactions, experiences, and relationships, and God uses these for his purpose. If you think about your history, you think about the important things that have happened to your life, um, when you've been hurt, when you've been joyful, it's all connected to relationships. It's all connected to other people. Uh, when God created us, it was so that we can have a relationship with him. And we broke that by sinning. So everything after that, the way the world is structured is through these relationships. And so you'll see that God uses relationships, circumstances, and experiences to move his will along. And it, it can kind of be frustrating when we think, God, why, why can't you just eliminate the super evil things that happen? Well, a lot of times things that happen, we, when we talked about earlier, murder, adultery, all these kind of things, they start with these smaller sins. So if we really wanted to get rid of these bad things, we'd have to get rid of the small things. And that starts off with me and you. And none of us would say, God, in order to solve evil in this world, please get rid of me. None of us would say that. So the world is set up in relationships and experiences and God uses that. And so what we can see here is God is pre preparing a path forward. Not only is he setting things in motion, but now he's specifically preparing a path forward. And the biggest way we can see that is when the brothers decided to go to Dothan. That seems very inconsequential, seems very insignificant. Um, but you'll learn here in a second that that's a, that's a big thing. And again, all of this stuff that we see, like we're looking on the, uh, we're on the outside looking in. We're seeing all of this stuff and Joseph's not. He has no clue what's going on. Let's continue in verse 18. So the brothers saw him in the distance and before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, oh look, here comes that dream expert being very sarcastic. So now come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him, then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. So when Reuben, the oldest, uh, heard this, he tried to save him from his brothers. He said, let's not take his life. Reuben also said to them, don't shed blood. Uh, let's lower him into this pit in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Intending, uh, Reuben was intending to rescue him from them and return him to his father because he kind of wants to get into the good grace of his father again. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off Joseph's uh, robe, the long-sleeved robe that he had on. They then took him and threw him in the pit. The pit was empty without water, and they sat down to have a meal. Like, this is just something that they do every day. So how do you propose? They knew that the person coming towards them was Joseph. It's this coat. 
they see this. Here comes this dream expert. Here comes this younger brother that our father has put over us, and they're just spewing with hatred. They conspired to kill him, to throw him in a pit, and then lie to their father. And Reuben was like, no, let's not do that. Um, and in his mind, he's got this different idea. He's like, okay, um, how can I get back into my father's good graces? What can I do? Let's not kill him. And then when my father worries where Joseph is, I can kind of rescue and then he's going to look at me with favor. So there's, there's some ideas going on here. After they have done all this stuff, they sat down without a beat and had a meal. Okay, so, so there's just, there's no concern here at all through the brothers. If you have strained relationships in your family, sometimes it's because of something that happened. Other times it's because uh, someone's unwilling to forgive. I'm not, I don't know of your situation. But I can't imagine what is going through Joseph's brain right here. All right, continuing in verse 25. And when they looked up, there was a caravan, so they being the brothers from, their, from eating, a caravan of Ishmael's coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying aromatic gum, balsam, and resin, also myrrh, a bunch of spices, going down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmael's and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When the Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. So first, Reuben was trying to save him for his own purposes, and now Judah is concerned with possible repercussions. And so he saw this caravan and says, let's not leave him for dead, but instead let's sell him to make a profit. And when I had spoken earlier about God preparing a path forward, the way this caravan and the traveling for trade was going was if they were still in Shechem, they don't see this caravan. When they went north a little bit to Dotham, probably about another 20, 20, 30, 40 miles, give or take, it was right next to this path that the caravan was taking. So without this, they don't sell Joseph into slavery, and then we kind of see at the end of this passage how important that is. Verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes, he went back to his brothers and said, the boy is gone, what am I going to do? (laughs) So they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a male goat, and dipped the robe in its blood. They sent the long sleeve robe to their father and said, we found this. Examine it. Is it your son's robe or not? Not their brother's, but is this your son's? His father recognized it. It is my son's robe, he said. A vicious animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. So then Jacob tore his clothes, put a sackcloth around his waist, and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And his father wept for him. So as you see here, the brothers decided to sell him and then make it look like he was killed and said, your son's robe. So you see that hatred still going on for Jacob as well. So (laughs) this is kind of a bleak story. It's not super cool. A lot going on. But I kind of want us to look at uh, verse 36. So let's look at the final verse in chapter 37 as it's somewhat of a cliffhanger to this uh, season one of the Dream Expert, if it's a TV show. Verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards. Seems very disconnected from the rest of the passage. So as the screen fades to black with Jacob in mourning, kind of like those Marvel, you know, movies. I don't watch them, but I know there's cool things after the credits. Um, Or like hints at new things coming. 
Uh, that's kind of what we got going on here. Jacob's in mourning. His sons are smirking at one another. The credits roll only to be interrupted by this final scene where it says, the Midianites sold Joseph into Egypt to Potiphar, the officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards. So he's going from the pit to the right-hand man to Pharaoh and the ruler of Egypt. Now, Joseph's story is not over. He's going to be in prison. He's going to be tempted, all this kind of stuff. But what we also see here is what is God doing while we're suffering? God is orchestrating your salvation, whether it's spiritual, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional. He's orchestrating your salvation. You see, the entire purpose of God orchestrating the free decisions of sinful people in verse 37 is to get Joseph to Egypt. Like that's the ultimate thing. Again, spoilers, there's going to be a great famine. We're going to learn about that. And Joseph's position where he eventually gets to is life-saving to, to his family and to everybody else he's around. And that does not happen. That does not happen if Joseph doesn't go out to Shechem and get redirected to Dothan and get sold into slavery. I mean, he's, he's basically, he's, it doesn't say this, but um, Joseph was not like very passive. He wasn't like, oh, this is cool. God's going to do great things. Um, there's later evidence that in the book of Genesis that Joseph like cried out to his brothers like, hey, don't do this to me. It says in Genesis 42, 21, his brothers say this, obviously we are being punished for what we did to our brother, Joseph, who we saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. So time and time again, we see in scripture that God is not lazy. God is not passive. He's quite the opposite. So what is he doing while we suffer? I do know he's not insensitive to our circumstances. The greatest evidence of this is on the cross where he took our penalty for our sin, laid it to rest through his death and renewed us through his resurrection. In fact, all scripture points to Jesus and his sacrifice. The Bible shows us page after page how God uses relationships, triumphs, and tragedy for our good. How can this be applied today? Well, for those of you who are followers of Christ, Look at numerous ways God has rescued you in the past. Apply those certainties to devastating situations you find yourself in right now. How will you respond? You look at yourself and you've been somewhere. You might even still be there. But how did, how did God respond? How did he use what you went through? If you look back. That's why I think sometimes it's helpful to journal. Is you can kind of be reminded of when God rescued you from somewhere you felt like you had no, you had no clue what was going to go on. You had no clue how that result was going to result in something else. And yet when you look back, you're just like, yeah, I, I, I kind of I see all of this. I, I wouldn't have done this unless this happened. Now, you may not always get that answer. You have to be okay. And this is just blatant honesty. You have to be okay sometimes not having the answer to the question, why? You've submitted yourself to Christ. You, you trust in him. And there's, there's going to be doubts but you may not get that answer. But do know that God isn't doing nothing. For those of you who are here who maybe a friend invited you or you just came to get, your, get an autograph from one of our, our band members or you were just uh, bored and you wanted something to do, are you tired of suffering alone? Not are you tired of suffering while sin is still present, suffering is inevitable, but would you like to experience hope amid your pain so you can see beyond a future, the weight of your own sin and beyond your own tears. So what is God doing while we suffer? God is doing everything so we can find fulfillment in him. Oh, one of my, one of my, 
favorite TV shows is Lost. I know that's a controversial take because the way it ended. Um, but as I watch that show, you're thinking about all these different things connecting. A bunch of these people are on an island. You know, they've met each other sometimes in a previous life or out in the real world, and now they're here on this island, and we're, we're seeing all these things connected, and it just seems like this one huge, you know, cosmic conspiracy. But really, the focus of my interpretation of loss was the relationships that were created, the good ones and the bad ones. It's all about these relationships. And so God's putting his plan in motion. He's preparing a path forward, and he's orchestrating your salvation now. Uh, about 2018, I, I had about three... three um, three shoulder surgeries, and uh, I would say 2016, 17, 18. And then um, I was going through a rough time at, at work, and I just need to make a change. I'd always thought about going out and living in, in uh, Denver. Uh, beautiful weather, my opinion. Um, doesn't get as humid, and uh, the mountains and all that good stuff. And you're like, well, I'll just go to Asheville or something. Nope, Denver. So I had moved out there. I sold my house. I got a de- decent amount of profit on it. I lived just right around the corner. And I was there, I had a job. The job didn't, did not end up um, being what I thought it was. Uh, my, my studio apartment was about $13.50 a month. Um, these are calculated decisions I made. <laughs> Use the wrong calculator, apparently. Um, but about four months in, um, I was basically broke, and I had to move back to Raleigh. Um, I didn't do it. This wasn't a bad decision. I've thought about this, like, Lord, did you... Did I do something wrong here? This wasn't a bad decision. Um, it was something I felt like I had to do in that time. I'd always thought about doing it, and I, I had no reservations. I had no stop from God, something I decided to do. Uh, it just didn't work out. I, I met a, a great um, church family, had a great community group. just didn't work, but I'm wondering, man, now I'm coming back to North Carolina. I literally, like, it's a 24-hour drive, um, and coming back in four months, I felt like such a moron. I had to explain it to my parents. I just, I just felt, I felt silly. I felt stupid. Um, and I had, I think it was January 2019, so it's around February. I have bills to, you know, pay. You know, those don't stop. <laughs> um, and I had $125 to my name. Um, and I don't say that to toot my own horn, but, like, I was still grateful. I was like, you know, I have $125 to my name. Some don't, don't have that. And I, it's taken me a while. It took me a while to get to that point that regardless of my suffering, what was I going to do with what I was going through right there? I can complain. I can fuss at God. I can fuss at my friends. Or you can do the other option, which is lean on God. Understand what he's doing behind the scenes. Ask him to reveal it to you, but rest in him if he doesn't. That's, that's the reality. I'm not going to try to give you, things are always going to turn out the way you want to. They may not. They may not. And you have to be okay with that because there's something larger, there's someone more important that loves you and that is gonna orchestrate your life. God is doing it all so that you can have all of him. And I'd say about three or four weeks later, uh, the company I was working with, they actually sold and I actually was given um, stock in that. And so I was written a, a, a nice check. And that was something I did not think I was going to get a part of because I had, I had resigned. Um, I just constantly see God doing things in my life, maybe not in the middle of it. A lot of times it's after the fact. And I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change how I view God. I wouldn't change my relationship with him. And just hang on tight. Hang on tight that 
What is God doing? Is he oblivious to my sin? Is he insensitive to the, that sin, but my suffering? Is he insensitive to my circumstances? What is he during, doing while I suffer? Well, I'll just spend some time asking him and maybe try to find out. But just, just rely on him because it, I'm speaking from experience here. And you have, to, you have to experience it as well. But what we see in Joseph, what we'll see in the future is there are things that were going on and he had no clue of. And man, you're about to see how God truly moved. And this story is revealed to us because God can do the same thing in you.